See, part of the reason I shared that with you this morning is so that you all can start a new tradition of a Thanksgiving food fight at your family. Wouldn't that be a lot of fun to do that? Just watching that last night, I thought, I'd like to join that family for Thanksgiving and just take the food and just have fun with it out in the backyard, throwing it around. Notice what it said towards the end there. What we need is the goodness of God. And that's what that family discovered. What they thought they needed for Thanksgiving and what they really needed for Thanksgiving were two different things. And what we need in life and what we really need in life are often two different things. The Bible says, as we're going to see in the book of Philippians this morning, that God has promised that He will supply all of our need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's His promise and His commitment to us. He will supply. We can live in what I like to call divine supply if we will come to Him and let God define for us and show to us what our real need is and then allow Him to meet that real need in our lives. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, or as I like to say to my young people, turn your Bibles on because they're probably on your cell phone. So if you've got it on your cell phone, turn your Bible on. And if you've got it in paperback version, then please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 4. I've been in a series of messages on the book of, from the book of Philippians. Philippi is where this the book was addressed to the believers in Philippi. It was a city founded by Philip of Macedon, hence the term Philippi, named after Philip of Macedon. He was the father of Alexander the Great. It was a town or a city that was known for a lot of veterans who lived there. Paul started the church at Philippi. He was very close to the people who lived there. Paul is in prison at the time that he writes this. It is one of what we call his prison epistles or prison letters that he writes from prison to this church. And in verses 14 and following of Philippians 4, Paul is thanking the Philippians for the help that they have been to them, to him, I should say. It says that they have stood out to Paul for how they have been with him when nobody else seemingly was with him. They are blessed by God because of what they have done. Verse 17. They had apparently sent multiple gifts to Paul. It says that he had received full payment. Apparently, whatever his debts were or needs were, he had been able to pay those in the full because of the offerings that they had sent to him. He said he's well supplied. And then he says their gifts to him have arisen up to God as a sweet aroma in the presence of God. In other words, as God has looked down and watched these believers bless the Apostle Paul, and the work that he's done and made his work possible, that giving of encouragement and blessing to Paul has been like an aroma to God as he has received it and watched what they have done. Now, the believers in Philippi were struggling with unity. They were struggling with persecution, and they were struggling with anxiety. But nonetheless, out of their need and out of their lack of abundance, they gave. I want to draw attention to that. They did not give to Paul out of their abundance. It was rather out of their own need and struggles that they gave to help him out. Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to begin with verse 14. Apostle Paul writing here, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, 
No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epiroditus the gifts you sent. Can you imagine a mother naming her child Epiroditus? I bet you if he started trying to spell that name on his papers in first grade, he was in the fifth grade before he could get all those letters out there. It says, The gifts you sent were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want to zero in on verse 19. And my God, notice the first person possessive pronoun there. And my God, promise, will supply. Notice how comprehensive it is. Every need of yours. How is he going to do that? According to his riches in glory, where? In Christ Jesus. Now, my sermon outline is containing your bulletin, and I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. Paul says to this church, my God is going to supply every need. Paul received these gifts. He's not in a position to repay the folks in Philippi for what they have done, but he says, my God will do that. You've given out of your need, and your giving out of your need has triggered God responding back. Now, he says God's going to respond to your giving, and he's going to meet every need in your life, but notice the context of this passage. He's saying that you gave out of faith, you gave out of your need, God has seen that, and God is responding to that, and your giving has now triggered God responding back to you and how He's going to meet every need in your life. You see, sometimes the Lord calls us to step out in faith and to give and to give out of need, and we say, God, I don't have much to give. i got to hang on to what I have. And God is saying, if you will step out and trust me, then I will respond to your trust. And your step of faith triggers His response of blessing. And that is what happened with the Philippians here. Now, he says, my God is going to supply every need. Notice the confidence out of which he says this. My God is going to supply every need in your life. How could Paul make a statement like that? Because he and God had history together. Every once in a while, somebody say, we got history together. In other words, we've been on the journey of life together. Well, Paul had history with God. Over and over and over again, he had seen God show up and God show off in his life. And I want us to look at two passages of Scripture where Paul outlines how God had, had that, made that history with him. In the same chapter, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, he speaks to that. And, he's, and he says, and he gave the, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the teachers. And somehow or another, I managed to turn to the book of Ephesians on that. All right, let's skip over to Philippians chapter 4, staying in the same chapter, verses 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now notice what Paul is saying there. He's saying, I've been in every kind of situation that you can imagine. I've had need. I've had plenty. I've had hunger. I've had abundance. In every type of situation, Paul says, that I have found myself in in life, I have learned to be content because God has met me in that place and God has taught me contentment in that place. And see, folks, part of how God responds in our lives and works in our lives is that He sees where we are and He meets us where we are and responds to the need of where we are. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. Are they servants of Christ? This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day. I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers. In toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, thirst, often without food, in coal and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. And then over in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, my God will supply all of your need. And I know that my God will supply all of your need. Because it's not a nice saying. He said, I, I've been beaten I've been thrashed with a whip. I know what it is to bob up and down in the ocean all night long when your ship is wrecked. I've been imprisoned. You name it and I've been through it. But every time that I've been there and everything that I've gone through, His grace has been sufficient. He got me into it. He got me through it. He delivered me out of it. His grace has been sufficient. My God will supply all of your need. I love that use of that pronoun. My God will supply all of your need. He didn't say, my grandma's God's going to do it. He didn't say, the God that I heard about. 
He said, my God has done it. And folks, there comes a time and a place for all of us when we got to stop living off of somebody else's faith and somebody else's experience. And when we have to live in our own faith and our own experience and God creates need in our life and we have to come to Him and say, Lord, You have to become my God. I've got to know Your grace, Your sufficiency, Your presence in where I am in my life. And God orchestrates and works in our lives to get us to that place. Now notice where he says that divine supply is. He says, my God, verse 19, will supply every need. The Greek word that's used there has two ideas in it. Number one, it means to fill something to the full. And he is saying that God is going to respond to the needs in our lives by filling us to the full. In other words, God doesn't halfway meet the need. He doesn't two-thirds meet the need. God fills us. He fills the need to the full. The second idea is completeness. It is the idea that God completes us. See, need always creates a sense of us being incomplete. And he's saying here that when God responds to our need, He completes us. Now, my God will supply your every need. Need, by definition, is need. Need is need. This is what I'm trying to say. Following Jesus creates need. Following Jesus creates need. We sometimes have this idea that if we follow Jesus and we serve Jesus, then we don't have any needs anymore. That He just stands there and takes care of everything, and so we're not needy. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's going to supply your every need. And it's the idea of you're going to have a whole lot of needs because when we follow Jesus, following Jesus creates need. Doesn't eliminate it. And it's often in the delay of the need being met that we have the most difficulty. God, you know what I need in my life. Why are you taking so long to respond to it? God, if you own the cattle on a thousand hills, as your word says, Lord, if you've got the power that, you know, I was singing about and here preached about, why are you taking your own good time to show up and to respond to this need in my life? My God will supply every need, but we got to go through a time of need and experience need and experience incompleteness before he responds to and meets that need. And there are two types of need that we struggle with. The first all is physical need. And that's just stuff that we need. Food, shelter, you name it. The non-material need is the most difficult. The needs that the Philippians had were by and large non-material. The first was steadfastness in the face of opposition. Those Philippians who were choosing to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk with Him were facing all kinds of opposition. It was not uncommon in those days if you were in business and you were known to be a Christian that your business got boycotted. You got ostracized from your family. And so they were facing opposition. Secondly, they were facing struggles of unity in the church there. And they needed grace from God to put up with each other and humility with which to walk with one another. And third, anxiety. God's saying, I'll be the God of peace to you in the anxieties that you struggle with. My God will supply all your need. In Christ Jesus. 
we tend to struggle between need and want. What is a need and what is a want? Now, I don't know if any of you all had this experience or were like this, but when I was growing up on Christmas morning as a child, to a certain degree, I was a real jerk. Now, let me explain to you how I was a real jerk. When I got down there and ran that tree on Christmas morning, I had a need in my mind, and my need was for more toys. That was the only thing that I needed and I wanted on Christmas morning was toys. And I had an idea of all the toys that I needed, that I had to have. And so I would begin to open the presents. Now, my parents and my grandparents had this bad habit on Christmas Day of about half the gifts being clothing. And I didn't want clothing. I didn't need clothing. I didn't want clothing. And I remember sitting there, and my dear grandmother would go out, and she would shop and shop and find the best brand she could get and get me pants and shirts and that kind of thing. And I remember I'd open it up and tear that wrapper off and open that gift up, and there would be a shirt. And I'd throw that shirt to the side and go for another gift because I wanted them toys. I wanted no stinking shirt. My mother, for reasons I will never understood it, loved on Christmas morning to give me a year's supply of underwear. I could never understand what Christmas and underwear had to do with each other. But when I would just begin, back in those days, everything was white, you know, whitey tighties and so forth. And I can remember, just about the time I'd sort of begin to creak that box open and I'd see them white underwear in there, I'd be like, oh my gracious, why in the world? She was just wasting Christmas morning giving me underwear. And I'd take that box and throw it away. And I'd go till I found the toy. And then when I got the toy, I was really excited. And I look back and I think, what in the world my grandmother must have felt like watching all that time she spent shopping for me to get me the best clothes she could get, and I'm just throwing those things to the side because what I wanted was a toy. Now, if all I had gotten was toys, man, I'd have been so happy. But that's all they ever gave me. In January, when it was 30 degrees outside, I'd have gone out in my house naked. <laughs> Frozen half to death. Now, I'd have had a house full of toys, but that's not going to do me any good outside in 30-degree weather. You see, I had my, my needs mixed up with my wants. And when the Bible says here that God's going to respond to every need. We've got to let the Lord discern and show us what our need is. And what our want is. Because too many of us are saying God's not answering my prayer. And God's saying I'm meeting your needs but I'm not giving you your wants. If I gave you your wants, you'd be so selfish and egotistical, it wouldn't even be funny. So I'm going to give you your need, but you've got to listen to me and let me define for you the difference between a need and a want. You see, the Bible says that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. I have a need to take up his cross and follow him. But notice this cross, it's rough. It's got nails on it. 
It's got red streaks on it that remind us of His blood that was shed on the cross. You see, the cross was never a pretty thing. The cross spoke of sacrifice. The cross spoke of suffering. I've got a need to pick up a cross. I've got a need to pick up a cross in my life that it's going to involve suffering. It's going to involve sacrifice. But I don't want the cross. In fact, if I want to pick up a cross, I want one that's nice and smooth and pretty and people look at I don't like a rugged cross with nails in it. I don't like a cross that reminds me of suffering and sacrifice. I just like one that looks nice from a distance. But I need the cross as it is. I need the cross that Jesus gives to me. But I'm going to find myself pulling away from it and rejecting it. Because what I want and what I really need are two different things. And some of you right now, God has got a cross that He wants us to pick up. He's got a cross He wants us to carry. And we're looking at that and we say, God, I don't want to serve you in that place. And I don't want to walk with you in that way. And I don't want to be used of you in that way. It may be somebody God's calling you, God, them kids drive me nuts. And you're telling me to go back in there and work with them again. That person, Lord, just offends me every time I'm around them. And you're telling me i got to keep doing it. And he's saying, yeah, you got a cross to pick up. And you need to pick up my cross. My home church is located, when I was growing up, in an upper-middle-class to upper-income neighborhood. And if you'd have walked through the parking lot on a Sunday morning, you'd have seen a lot of nice vehicles. If you walked through the hallways of my home church, you would have seen people dressed very nicely. Our worship services featured some of the best music of that era with very accomplished musicians. All of our staff was well-educated. We were thoroughly an upper-middle-class, upper-income congregation. A few miles down the road from our church was an adult home. The folks in that home lived in poverty. They dressed in clothing that was definitively out of style. They were all mentally challenged, and they didn't know how to act in church. Now, my home church started a ministry to those folks, and they would bring them up to church on Sunday morning for Sunday school and then for worship. Now, our worship services were very different than our services. You could have heard a pin drop in the room, and if anybody said amen, people looked around like, what's your issue that's going on? Our services started with the organ playing Bach and Beethoven pieces. I mean, that's how formal and straight-laced we were. But those folks would sit over there in the service, and they'd yell out every now and then, because that's just what they did. We had a special call business meeting on some issue one Sunday after the service, and a moderator stood up there, and he says, there's any question on the motion. And one of the folks stood up, from the adult home. And they just jabbered out a bunch of stuff that made absolutely no sense. And he looked over and he said, thank you so much and, and God bless you. And they sat down. And every once in a while they blabber out stuff in the service and it make you feel a little uncomfortable because it didn't fit at all with what was going on. But follow me on this. Our church needed those adults. 
they reminded us of why we were the church. They reminded us of what church is all about. They constantly held in front of us the vision and the mission of ministering to people that we needed. So when God looked at our church and He said, I'm going to make you needy, you're going to need to have a need. It's going to be a need to have a vision of what it means to be my church. It's going to be a vision of what it means to have the heart of my son among you. The way I'm going to meet that need is I'm not going to send you a bunch of well-heeled, nice-dressed people. I'm going to send you an adults from the adult home that are going to be disruptive because you're going to have a holy disruption on Sunday morning. And in that disruption, I'm going to be reminding you of who you are and what you are as my church. And our folks learned to, to love those people as God met that need in our congregation. Notice what he says. Where is he going to meet the need? He says, I'm going to meet the need by his riches in glory. The idea of the riches of God is him as our creator and as our Lord. His riches, the riches that He created you, He formed you and I. He breathed His life into us, and He made us for Himself. Your riches, His riches, where? In glory. The word glory in the New Testament means all that Jesus is and Jesus does. Think of that when Jesus fed the 5,000. He saw the need, and He had the power to respond to it, and He had the love to respond to it. He sees our need... And he has the power and the love to respond to it. He's going to do it according to his riches and glory. Where? In Christ Jesus. Now you will see the, the terminology or the title for Jesus that is used many times in the New Testament. Christ Jesus is not just a fancy title. It's, two, it's a title Christ and a personal name Jesus put together for a specific reason. Let me give it to you. Number one. The term Christ is his title as Messiah. It means that he is the anointed of God. As the Son of God, he is empowered with all that God is. Jesus is not 50% God, 75% God, 95% God. He is 100% God. So as Christ, he is the Messiah empowered by God. The term Jesus is a transliteration. The name Jesus is a transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means Jehovah is my salvation or Jehovah is my deliverer. It is his human name giving him human identity. On the cross, he died giving his blood to meet the need of our sin, our guilt, our shame, and our separation from God. You see, the two greatest needs that we have, He's already met. My need to, for a Savior, my need for a deliverer for my sin, and even from myself was met on the cross and in the life of Jesus. When He died on the cross, shed His blood for me on the cross, He was meeting the need that I needed a forgiveness from my sin and release and deliverance from my sin. Follow me on this. The greatest need I've got in relation to my sin is not forgiveness, it's deliverance. I tend to think it is forgiveness. Lord, I need to be forgiven of my sins so I don't get punished. He says, I'll forgive you, but I don't just want to forgive you. I want to deliver you from it, from the power of it. And on the cross, he got secured forgiveness, but on the cross, he also broke 
the power of sin in our lives. He acted as our deliverer. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, Jesus rose so he could say to us, I'm going to walk up to you, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk with you through the rest of your life. I'm going to walk with you, but I want you to walk with me down my road. Don't keep on walking down your road. I'm going to take your hand, and you're going to walk down my road. You see, Jesus is saying in the resurrection, it's time to walk with me down my road. See, some of us just can't get that straight sometimes. That's the reason Jesus is constantly having to do damage control in our lives because we're trying to drag Him down our road where we keep screwing up and asking Him to make, clean it up. And Jesus is saying, hey, let's do same things a little bit differently. Let's walk down my, my road. i got a road for you. i got a destiny for you. i got a way that I want you to live. Walk down the road with me in the direction that I want to go and walk with me. Because that's one of the reasons I rose from the dead. That's the need that you got to walk down my road and to walk with me. I want you to think about Jesus meeting the need of the 5,000. Imagine yourself in the crowd that day. And imagine yourself looking at Jesus as he supplied the need. Look in his face. You see anticipation and joy. Because Jesus knows what he's about to do. They're sitting there. The disciples are freaking out with anxiety. we got 5,000 plus people here. What, how are we going to do it? And Jesus has got a smile on his face because he knows what he's going to do. Hey, Philip, do, do you have enough bread to feed these people? Lord, we had a whole bread factory here It wouldn't feed these people. Lord, i got five loaves and i got two fishes Philip's face is filled with anxiety. Jesus' face is filled with joy and anticipation. Jesus says, bring this stuff over here this boy's got. Tell everybody to sit down. Don't tell them to leave. Tell them to sit down. That was the way you signaled it's time to have a meal. Tell them to sit down. Jesus takes his hands and he begins to break the bread and the fish. Now I want you to think about the hands of Jesus. They were the hands of a carpenter. No doubt large hands. Rough hands. Strong hands. Their need was in His hands. And there is no better place for our need to be in the hands of Jesus. And they watched those strong, rough hands breaking bread and breaking fish and passing them. Think about his voice, calm and determined. Tell the people to sit down. It's dinner time. Think about his eyes, just as relaxed and easy going as they could be. As they begin to pass loaf after loaf after loaf and fish after fish after fish out. Think about his feet. They weren't moving away from the crowd and the need. They were moving to the crowd and the need. If you watch the feet of Jesus 
In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, it's always moving two people. His feet are always going to people. His feet are moving to need, not running away from need. Think about his nose. What was it smelling? Smelling a lot of hot, sweaty, stinky bodies. Can you imagine 15,000 people out in Palestinian heat all day long, what they would have smelled like? Would have smelled terrible, but not to Jesus, because that spoke of 15,000 people who needed him, and he was responding. Think about his mind, filled with thoughts of satisfaction. Man, I am so glad I am here. I am so glad I am surrounded by 15,000 hungry, needy people. Because that's why I came to this earth. That's why I'm here. How could Jesus look at 15,000 people and be smiling and excited about it? Because His need had already been met by the Father. And now the power of God and the love of God was tracking through Him. Out to them. How in the world can you and I smile in the face of need? Because when we know that we know that we know that we have already been empowered and filled by the Lord. The power of the Holy Spirit. Then we got the confidence to know that whatever the need is in our life. And whatever the need is in the folks that are around us. God is going to show up. God is going to show off. And God is going to meet need. Our job is simply this, Lord, would you show me my need? Would you teach me my need? And the Lord, Lord Jesus, meet that need and fill that need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. In a moment, silent prayer, I want to invite you to ask the Lord, Lord, what is the need in my life today? Not what are my wants, but Jesus, what is the need? And that need may very well be that there's a cross we need to pick up that we don't want to pick up. Lord, what is that need? Jesus... Help me to understand and discern how you're going to meet that need. Jesus, help me to understand and discern how you are going to meet that need. If you need forgiveness of sin, if you need a new life in Jesus, He is here to meet that need. And as we sing in a moment, I want to invite you on His behalf to say to Him, Jesus, today I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my Lord. I want to follow you. I want to know your cleansing and your deliverance. I want to walk down your road with you.
If you're here, you need to make that decision. I'll be here at the front as we sing in just a moment. I'd love to pray with you about deciding to follow Jesus. If the Lord is laying upon your heart to become part of our church family, I invite you to come. If you need to come and just pray at the front or there in the pew as we sing, I invite you to do that. Lord, show me my need. And God, begin to help me discern how you're going to meet that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Stand together and sing, come if you will.